This is an ABC podcast. The crown means different things to different people. And whatever your thoughts, you can't miss the colossal reaction to the Queen's death. But as the monarchy enters a new era, how much have we learned from the past? G'day, it's Dave Marchese with you for the Hack Podcast. In a bit, you're going to hear how Indigenous elders and young First Nations Australians are reacting to the Queen's death and a new king. Also coming up, the huge waiting lists for rehab that are stopping young people from getting help. First, though. You're listening to Hack. Our task has been accomplished. Glory to Ukraine. Glory to heroes. On Triple J. Did you hear what happened in Ukraine over the weekend? One Ukrainian I saw described it as one of the greatest efforts of modern history. It definitely seems to be a massive turning point in the war in Ukraine, and Russia's grip on the northeast of the country has collapsed. Ukraine's managed to force Russia's military into an embarrassing retreat, reclaiming thousands of square kilometres of land. Experts are still trying to verify all the information, but it does look like Ukraine's forces have tripled their territorial gains in just a couple of days. So how did they do this? Where did it come from? And what does it mean for the future of the war? Well, let's get to an expert. Dr. Olga Boychak is from the University of Sydney and is with us now. Dr. Boychak, thanks for joining us on Hack. Hi, Dave. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It seems like Ukraine's forces have pulled off something incredible here. Can you explain what exactly they've done? Yes, absolutely. They have pulled off something incredible. What they've done is they've retaken the key, the strategic key points that will now allow them to secure uh, some of the territory that had previously been occupied by Russia. So their counteroffensive has focused on two in two directions in the uh, northeast of Ukraine. Some of it has been happening in the south, so uh, near Kherson. Some of it has been happening in Kharkiv region, so that is more to the east. And they've retaken uh, Balaklia, Izum, and Kupyanka, which are these key strategic points that pretty much allow them to secure Kharkiv region and to also start their counteroffensive advancing kind of inland, well, well more uh, towards the Russian-occupied territories of Donetsk and Luhansk. Um, this very swift, very decisive move uh, had been in preparation for probably many months. I really do not have access to that information, but we can assume. Also, there were uh, many counterintelligence efforts that accompanied this move. So it was known and Russians could expect the counteroffensive on Kherson in the south. But the counteroffensive in the east was a complete surprise to the Russian army. And as a result, uh, the Ukrainian army was able to break through those lines. And it turned out that Russians didn't have any backup in plan, that they're actually, they were quite disoriented uh, seeing this, this counteroffensive. They yeah. left a lot of their equipment behind, a lot of tanks. Many of the Russian army soldiers are now on the run or fled or surrendered. And it is, it is now a matter of whether they will be able to, the Ukrainians will be able to retake Kherson and whether the Russian army will be willing to surrender and leave uh, or there will be heavy fighting. Because right now there's incredible losses on the Russian side. There's just piles of body bags and it's unsettling to see. And there's also heavy losses on the Ukrainian side, but not... Uh, nearly as heavy as on the Russian side. And just to explain how significant this is, like Russia 
has abandoned its main base in the Kharkiv region. And I'm seeing like reports in Russian media even that they're urging Russian speakers in that area to evacuate and to, to flee into Russia. I'm wondering, how did the Ukrainian forces manage to do this? Like, is it true that they fooled the Russian forces into thinking they were actually focusing on a different part of the country and then just out of nowhere attacked? It is. There is some truth to it. I do not know the extent to it because... Of course, this information is classified, but it is true that that was the way it's been executed. And of course, Ukraine has a really uh, skilled uh, general. So Zaluzhny is is uh, very respected among among the military and he knows what, he, what he's doing. And he has now demonstrated himself as this brilliant military strategist. But of course, we also know that Ukraine, this is finally where the support by Ukraine's Western allies has been palpable. We saw the Bushmasters helping retake Izum. I mean, how cool is that to just be able to actually see those Bushmasters, right? We all saw them covered on the news. We saw them being boarded on those cargo planes. We knew that they were being taken over there, but actually seeing them in in battle and seeing them in such a significant military campaign is, is pretty cool. And that's actually does reinforce the fact that Australia is Australia's support is really appreciated. It's huge. It needs to continue because they're able to do these amazing things with it. Well, I'm wondering, yeah, is this all thanks to brilliant military planning or is it because the weapons and other supplies Ukrainians are being supplied by the rest of the world are finally uh, having an effect and, and reaching Ukrainian forces? Well, it's both. I guess it's both, right? It takes a lot of uh, thought and strategy to put these weapons to a good use, which Ukrainians have shown that they are capable of doing. And seeing seeing lots of those uh, media clips or lots of those videos coming from those liberated territories, is it's really palpable how much the extent to which people appreciate being liberated. They've been under in- incredible stress. There's, as you know, there's a lot of disappearances on the occupied territories. There's filtration camps. There's forced deportations. So these people have been through so much. And right now, finally being liberated is something that I guess everyone was hoping for. But the fact that it happened and that they hopefully will be able to advance further and to retake more and more of the Ukrainian territory is uh, is really yeah is inspiring a lot of hope do based you, on what we're seeing. Do you think it could ultimately mean that there might be a different ending to the war sooner than thought, or the war might finish up earlier than thought? I think it's all a matter of the extent to which Ukraine's allies support it. As you understand, this is probably so. The war that's being fought in Ukraine right now is can be compared to very to much older wars, to probably to World War Two. There hasn't been as heavy fighting with so many so many uh, military losses prior to to this war, and so right now what we're seeing is really, I guess, that conventional war that is no longer taking place elsewhere. And so yes, it will depend because things are running out. Right, Ukraine is running out of ammunition. The, uh, the there's a huge asymmetry between the Ukrainian army. And the Russian army, Russia was thought to have the second most powerful army in the world. They have pretty much unlimited supplies of different things. They have unlimited military force, which right now we see there's a lot of, uh, 
a lot of limitations to that, let's say, right? We can see how the ways in which corruption has undermined, drastically undermined their capabilities. We can see that their morale is low. We can see that their strategy is very kind of old fashioned and very linear, uh, whereas Ukrainians are able to act more swiftly. So I, I guess it is, it's just right now we're seeing that the support that Ukraine receives is actually put to a good use. And, and yes, Ukraine absolutely needs more of it. Well, because so that is actually, that's one single thing that we can do to stop this war is to arm Ukraine, help them retake the territory. Well, there's a lot happening and we'll definitely keep across it. Appreciate your insight. Dr. Olga Boychuk from the University of Sydney. Thanks for speaking with us on Hack. Thank you so much, Dave. Hack. The Crown has always had a complicated relationship with the First Nations people it reigns over. On Triple J. Days on from the death of the Queen, Australia is still coming to terms with what it means for us and our future. And while there's a lot of ceremony and tradition being played out here and around the world, even a public holiday next week, there's also deeper reflection on the history of the monarchy and its impact on First Nations communities. Because for more than two centuries, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have made direct appeals to the royal family over past and current policies that have directly impacted them. So moving forward, there's a lot to think about. I want to ask a bit more about this and the reaction from First Nations communities. Jetta Costa is the ABC's Indigenous Affairs reporter and she's with us now. Hey Jetta, thanks for speaking with us on Hack. Thank you for having me. I saw an article over the weekend that said the Queen's left behind a complex legacy for First Nations people. You've been speaking with elders and others in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. I'm wondering what's been the reaction that you've heard to Queen Elizabeth's death? There's certainly been a huge mixture of reactions from mob across the country and we know that's because of Australia's complicated relationship with the Crown since British colonisation. Uh, the Queen's reign lasted for 70 years and during that time Indigenous people were subject to many brutal policies that ultimately saw them dispossessed from their own lands, um, culture and community. So for many, her death remains a stark reminder of that ongoing collective pain and suffering that's still being felt by Indigenous people today in 2022. Um, and some argue that she wasn't responsible for the act of colonisation itself, but others say the Queen had enormous responsibility and power to rectify some of the wrongs of the past that were inflicted on First Nations communities by the powers that be within the British monarchy, which is what she represents. Um, but on the other side of the spectrum, some of the elders I've spoken to are very fond of the Queen and her legacy, and they say um, outside of the politics, she's been a constant figure who they've grown to love and adore throughout their lives, and there's many that are really mourning her death. That's really interesting, Jetta, and I'm wondering, are older people reacting differently to younger Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders? 
there's there's definitely a contrast between the younger and older generation in how they're reacting to the news. As I just said, many older people looked up to the Queen as a very genuine and authoritative figure. But I have noticed that there's that's not so much the case with younger people in my community who may not be entirely aware of Queen Elizabeth's history and the role that she played as the head of state. Uh, but there's also a large section of young people questioning why we should care so much about a 96-year-old woman who lived abroad in a foreign country that didn't really have much of an influence in their lives. I just want to get a bit specific with some of the interactions the Queen had. Like, the Queen visited the regional Victorian town of Shepparton in 1954. Triple J listeners familiar with Shep, we were there recently. What did that tour mean for the local Indigenous community at the time? Yeah, so the Queen made more than a dozen visits to Australia in her time, but the first, as you said, was in 1954, and that was during an era when Indigenous people were forced to live on missions and on the margins of town with little to no human rights. Um, And she passed through Shepparton in northern Victoria, um, and at the time, Yorta Yorta people had recently walked off the nearby Kamragunja mission, Kamragunja mission, sorry, in protest of their poor living conditions and harsh treatment by the government and Christian missionaries. Uh, and they made a new home on a stretch of a floodplain between Shepparton and Marupna near the causeway. Um, and many refer to that place as the flats. So during the Queen's visit, her entourage led her past the causeway where the Indigenous community were living in dire conditions in tin humpies and tents, but she didn't see them because local authorities had screened the area off with Hessian bags, and that's because blackfellas were deemed too unsightly uh, for Her Majesty's eyes. Um, I've, I've spoken to Yorta Yorta elder Auntie Faye Carter, who was a teenager living with her family when it happened, and she said it was something that the mob had just accepted at the time. But as she got older, she began to feel more and more insulted by the situation, and I think she speaks for the majority of her community who experienced that. Um, it just really highlights the two very different worlds that people were living in. Yeah, another moment in Australian history that really explains just how far back First Nations people were raising issues directly with the Crown as well was when a Yorta Yorta leader organised a petition to the Queen's grandfather, King George V, back in the 1930s, so almost 100 years ago. Can you tell us a bit about William Cooper and who he was? Yeah, so Uncle William Cooper, um, he's a very celebrated activist in the Indigenous community, especially here in Victoria. In 1937, he sent a petition to Federal Parliament to send to King George, and it called for greater representation of Aboriginal people in the Parliament, and he was pushing for Aboriginal people to have more of a say in the laws which affected them, much like today's debate over a voice to Parliament. Uh, And it was signed by almost 2,000 Aboriginal people from across the country, which was quite a feat for the times because many states had restricted the free movement of Aboriginal people. So I think this part of history speaks volumes about the long and arduous fight the Indigenous community have been battling for decades. Yeah, and like you say, a very celebrated figure 
in Aboriginal history, but there's probably a lot of non-Indigenous Australians who aren't fully aware of just what William Cooper was able to achieve. What are the elders hoping will change under the new king? Like you were speaking to some elders, did they did they say uh, what they thought of this new reign? Yeah, well, uh, one of the elders, as I mentioned before, Arnie Faye Carter, um, she says the Queen was quite complicit in her role and she said she rarely spoke publicly about the struggles of First Nations communities and she told me she would like to see a formal apology from the royal family acknowledging the brutal impacts of colonisation and from that she would um, like to see more efforts made to address the ongoing injustices within the Indigenous community. She was also saying that she had hopes that uh, King Charles might have a better attitude and be less conservative as the Queen, but um, we can only wait and see. And this really complicated relationship with the monarchy, it's not just something impacting our First Nations people, right? Like it's also a big issue across the Commonwealth. For sure, and I think that's um, that's been brought to the forefront, especially on social media. A lot of mob are connecting with other First Nations communities across the world um, because they have this collective sense of, um, I guess, suffering um, that communities have felt under British colonial rule. So um, it's definitely not an isolated, um, complicated relationship that First Nations have people have with, with the monarch. Definitely big issues and there are going to be a lot more conversations around them in the months, years ahead. ABC Indigenous Affairs reporter Jetta Costa, thanks so much for speaking with us on Hack. Thanks again. Hack on Triple J. And if you're interested and want to read more, Jetta's got an article that covers all of this. You can find it right now. It's on ABC News Online. Hack. We lose so many people just because we don't have the ability to get people in to treatment. On Triple J. One of the hardest things to do when you're struggling with anything is to ask for help. And we know even if you do, it's not always available. Like, look at the huge waiting times for people trying to get mental health support. We've covered that so much in recent times. And it's a similar story if you want to get into rehab. About half a million Australians can't get support for drug and alcohol addiction because it's not available. Maybe you've been through this or you've tried to get a friend or family member into rehab. What was the process like? Call in 1300-0555-36 or you can message in as well 0439-757-555 because the waiting can have a devastating impact on people. Edwina Story has more. When you're in addiction, you sort of lose all concept of time. You're just living hit to hit. It's not even day to day. Chloe is 28, and up until she was 25, she had a really bad addiction with a couple of drugs, including G and ice. And as a consequence of that, I became homeless. She's been clean for three years now, but the struggle took her ages. And part of that is because it can be really hard to access drug and alcohol treatment, especially residential rehab, when you're ready to do it. I used to sit there and I used to Google search how to stop using drugs and, you know, how to get off methamphetamine. After heaps of hesitation, she eventually got connected to a support worker who slowly started to talk to her about options like detox facilities. But there was a three-month wait 
like, okay, well, I've waited this long, but what about after that? At the time, I was living with a dealer, so it's like, what, I'm just going to go back to a dealer's house and I'm, I'm going to use again. Like, I think I need more support. And when she finally found out about residential rehab, she thought that was the perfect option to get some stability. But the wait was 12 months long. And that just made things so much worse. Honestly, my drug use increased more around that time because of the the feelings of hopelessness and the feelings of, of feeling trapped. And ultimately, that led to an intentional overdose for me because um, I just wanted to end it all. Recent data from the Australian Institute of Health says that between 2020 and 21, nearly 140,000 people sought some kind of publicly funded drug or alcohol treatment, including things like counselling, withdrawal management or residential rehab. And about 53% of those people were in their 20s and 30s. We treat half the number of people who want and need treatment in any one year in Australia. That's Alison Ritter. She is a drug policy expert. People who are experiencing trouble with drugs, their situation can change every day. So one day they might be absolutely ready to hop in to start some treatment process and then the next day they're not. The trouble is it's hard to get a detox bed. Because you often have to do 7 to 14 days detox at a medical facility before you can go to rehab. And it's even harder to get a resi rehab bed and you've got to get those two beds to line up. When she says resi rehab, she's talking about residential rehab. And we need a system that can respond much more immediately to the person and what they need on that day rather than putting them onto some system of waiting. With residential rehab services, there's public and there's private. The public ones can use your Centrelink payments to cover the costs, but there are way less of them. The private ones are pretty pricey if you don't have private health insurance, like hundreds of dollars a day. But they can have shorter wait times and there's way more of them. One of the things that is makes it a complicated policy area is that it's partly health policy, it's also social welfare policy, and it's also law and order and criminal justice policy. So we have all of the major portfolios involved, which actually then can mean no one stepping up and taking responsibility for this massive treatment gap. We lose so many people just because we don't have the ability to get people in to treatment. That's Jack Nagel, who was addicted to ice and went through the rehab system and ended up working in it after he got clean. And then he started his own private program. And he's heard that even when people are on the waiting list, sometimes they're told to call every day or even send in urine samples while they're on that wait list to prove their commitment. It's such a failing of not really the programs itself, but just the system and how underfunded it is that people are literally having to like pitch their case over two months when they've already put their hand up and said that they really want help. And he said that one of the things he's seen in the industry is that even when people do make it into a residential rehab, sometimes there's not much help once they leave. And if you think about it with any other like health condition, you don't just go through the initial thing and then you're just thrown out on the street to kind of fend for yourself. There's usually like follow-up and aftercare baked into the whole process. And that still should be considered as a part of treatment. 
Chloe eventually did manage to get into rehab and she stayed for 12 months. But getting there was such a big journey that included ending up in a psych ward. But it shouldn't have had to get to that point where I'm desperately crying for help and I'm in a psych ward because no one but understands addiction and understands the detox process and I've been put in a too hard basket. But eventually, yeah, I, I got accepted into the rehab and yeah, never looked back and now I'm nearly three years clean. Hack on Triple J. Edwina's story there, and yeah, I'm keen to hear from you if you've been through this. Maybe you or a family member's struggled to get access to rehab. Message in 0439 757 5. Getting some messages through, Jemima in Brisbane says, my brother's an 18-year-old ice addict. He couldn't get into rehab because he had to be sober for two weeks on his own before they'd see him. I want to go to a caller. Nick's on the line. Hey, Nick, what's been your experience? I'm just wanting to agree with everything that's just been said. You you have to have detoxed before you enter rehab. You have to go for interviews. You have to keep in constant contact with the rehab, like ringing them every week um, to, to make sure that you're interested. Um, there's limited spots available. And if you dual diagnosis and you've got mental health issues as well, then uh, some rehabs won't even take you. Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely an issue that we're hearing about, Nick, and a lot of people like you are saying the process is incredibly hard and it needs to change. Thank you very much for calling in. I want to go to an expert now. Professor Dan Lubman is the clinical director of Turning Point. It's a centre that provides addiction treatment. He's also with Monash Uni. Hey, Dan, thanks for coming on Hack. Oh, thanks for inviting us. We had a few years ago a lot of talk in the community about drug addiction. Like there were inquiries that were launched in different states. The former PM, Tony Abbott, called ICE a menace and he said it was ruining families and destroying lives. But now we're not hearing as much about it. Why do you think that is? Well, unfortunately, you know, addiction is one of the most stigmatised health conditions globally. You know, I think one of the stories we've, you know, we've heard consistently in this package is the fact that it's not treated as a health disorder. It's treated as sort of, you know, people bringing problems on themselves. And that's a huge issue. It means that we're not adequately resourcing um, it, the treatment like we do for any other health disorder. And because of that, because of the shame and stigma that's associated with addiction, it means that many people are waiting years, even decades to seek help. And that's why we're calling on a change and calling on government, both state and federal, to, to really think about how we... Um, treat this issue and treat it in a way that allows people to get the same support and compassion that they see for any other health disorder. Because the issue is, in some respects, getting worse. Like, I saw a figure saying in the past decade in Australia, the number of people dying from opioids has doubled. Like, it just seems so extreme. Oh, it's crazy. I mean, one in four Australians will struggle with an alcohol, drug or gambling problem sometime in their lives. And that obviously on a spectrum, one in 20 will develop the more severe part of the disorder, which we call addiction. Yet we don't talk about it. We know people in our families, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our sporting clubs. Everyone knows somebody, but we're not actually having that uh, conversation. That's why it's so good to have something like w what we're doing now on your program. And we need to have that honest conversation. We need to say that what the current approach is isn't good enough. Why? We wouldn't expect if, if you suddenly, for example, developed a breast lump and went to see your GP, you wouldn't be expected to go on a wait list or a lottery 
to see whether you're going to get help or not. I mean, that's absolutely unethical and immoral. You know, we, we need to treat this as a genuine health disorder and we need to make sure that, that we are resourced enough to provide people with the treatment they need when they need it. And you say, like, so many people are affected by this, but still there's going to be people that say, you know, I don't understand if, like, you know, if you're addicted to something, just, you know, give up. I, I don't see why it's such a big issue. What is it that happens in people's brains with addiction that makes it so difficult for some people? Well, I think, I mean, I think the key, key you know, issue here is this misconception around addiction. I mean, everyone, I've seen thousands of people who've come to me for treatment for their alcohol, drugs or gambling issues. And one of the things I can say is that when people come with those issues, they're not just presenting with those issues, but they're presenting with something that has driven them to use alcohol, drugs or gambling as an emotional analgesic. They're incredibly, we're all familiar with having a bad day and turning to something like alcohol to cope and deal with sort of, you know, stress or, or poor, you know, difficult emotions. And what we find in the treatment space is, yes, people are often focused on the drugs, but not what underpins that drug use. And what we see is there's underlying mental health issues, there's underlying trauma, there's underlying, you know, a whole range of other psychological issues that people are struggling with and they've turned to alcohol and drugs and they're using that as an emotional crux. And so if we want to be honest about this issue, we need to treat it like any other mental health issue and any other health disorder. We need to address the underlying drivers of that and make sure people can get the help that they really need. It's not simply about stopping. It's simply about understanding what is driving that addiction and making sure we have programs in place to help people address that underlying issue. Because if we don't address that underlying issue, people are just going to turn back to using drugs because that's the main coping strategies they have. And Dan, just very, very quickly, because we've only got 20 seconds left, but where can people go if they do need support? Well, you know, the, one of the great things is there are a lot of support options out there. Uh, there's a, a, a national helpline, both for alcohol and drugs and gambling. We can give you those numbers to give out throughout your program. There's two national online services, counsellingonline.org.au, gamblinghelponline.org.au. Please reach out. Please um, look at what's available. Please, um, lots of other peer support organisations, Smart Recovery, AANA, reach out. Don't, don't give up and uh, find that connection that will help you get into the right pathway. Very much appreciate your help and your um, expertise on this. Professor Dan Lubman, thanks for joining us on Hack. Thanks so much for the invite. Hack on Triple J. And that is all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.